My grandfather, Roy Allspaugh, grew up in Morris County, Kansas, right in the heart of the Flint Hills. Now, he would have told you back when he was alive that he was well into adulthood before he ever left Morris County, never stepped outside of the boundaries of the county that he was born in. Some of you know exactly what that's like. Just out of curiosity, how many of you grew up that way? You never left the county that you were born in until you were older. Only one, two, three, oh, there's a good number of you. That was the the truth of that generation. Most of them had their lives, their world, defined by the boundaries of the county that they grew up in. My dad would tell you, he grew up in Morris County, Kansas as well, that he was almost in the exact same situation except for a couple of times growing up when they went to Topeka, Kansas or went to Wichita, Kansas, to the north or the south. But for the most part, my dad found himself in a world defined by the boundaries of the state that he grew up in, and even more than that, the region of the state that he grew up in. Anybody in that boat? You didn't leave the state you were born in until you were well into adulthood? good number of you fit in that category as well. When I was growing up, the boundaries had been stretched a little bit for our generation. I grew up in a national generation. Meaning that by the time I was 18 years old, I had had my feet in the Pacific Ocean, the Atlantic Ocean, and the Gulf of Mexico, and had traveled across a good portion of our country. And I'm very thankful that my mom and dad were able to make that happen for my brother and I. It was a great thing. My generation is defined as a national generation. We grew up all across the United States of America. How many of you fit in that category? good number of you. By the time you were 18 years old, you had traveled all across the United States. The generation today is a global generation. They really are. They're not held by the county or the state or even the confines of our country. Kids today are traveling to Canada and Mexico. They are traveling transcontinental. They are headed all across the globe. By the time our middle son was 16 years old, he'd been to Africa for heaven's sakes left the United States, went to Africa, and he didn't even go with myself or his mother. He went with Deanie. Can you imagine? Man, that's faith right there. That is faith. And we were thrilled to do that. Deanie has taken our sons on, on a number of adventures, and, and he was able to take Eli on a missions trip, and we're thrilled that that was a part of, of his life and a part of his relationship with Deanie and, and Steve and Jason Stockenberg as well. But they live in a global world. Anybody been noticing that and and somewhat curious about it? These kids are well-traveled. How many of you are, are wondering about that? It's a unique dynamic of our society today. I would not say that Tina and I are well-traveled individuals, but I would say that we've been a number of places. We really have. And because of that, we have found some places that we really, really love. Let's start in the, the state of Kansas, in the Flint Hills. Beautiful place in the spring and the fall. And Tina and I love the Flint Hills of Kansas during those, those times of year. When we have traveled other places, we have, have found ourselves in the upper peninsula of Michigan. We love the UP. We love northern Wisconsin and northern Minnesota. They're beautiful places, and we really enjoy being there. We've fallen in love with some beaches in Hawaii and Florida at different times. Great spots that we would long to return to. But the truth of it is, Montana is a special place. It really is. And we love Montana. I am in total agreement with the concept that we live in the last great place. Amen? Amen. There is the best of everything right here. That's right. Montana deserves a round of applause. Even though we lived in the Colorado Rockies for a while and have traveled there all of our lives, both of us have, Montana is still the last great place. 
Now, this is what I know even from the, the traveling that she and I have done. There is something much better coming than any place we've ever been. There is something much better coming than anything that, that you've ever experienced. There is something much better coming, something much better waiting for us than if we were to take all of the great spots that we have really enjoyed, put them in a pot, stir them all together, and bring out the best. There's something that will trump even that. It is the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 20 talks about it. If you have your Bibles open to that spot, listen to what Scripture says. Verse 1. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil, or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image. They had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. The thousand year reign of Jesus Christ, the millennial kingdom of Jesus is going to be fantastic. Now that's not heaven, but it's awful close. In fact, we're going to find out as we go through this study today that it is near perfection. I'm going to hold on to that word near because it plays a big part in this. But it is near perfection. When Jesus returns and he establishes his kingdom, and that's what this is. It is the second coming of Jesus Christ. Not to be confused with the rapture of the church, the catching up of the church. This is the second coming of Jesus Christ when he comes to this earth and establishes his kingdom. It'll last a thousand years and it'll be the best of the best. It really will. Nearly perfect. I was reading a book this past week written by Stephen Ambrose. I was actually reading it, getting ready for a funeral yesterday, and I can get caught up in Ambrose's writings. I'm one who believes, and a fellow after first service came out and disagreed with me wholeheartedly, but that's all right, he's free to be wrong. I'm one who believes that, that Stephen Ambrose, before he died, was the finest historian our generation has ever known. I love his writings. A lot of you have read some of his books, like Undaunted Courage, the story of Lewis and Clark. Some of you have read my favorite one of Ambrose's books, uh, a small little book called Comrades, the history and the story of, of different friends and the relationships that they've had. I love that book. Well, the one that I was reading yesterday, though, is titled To America. It was written not long before Stephen Ambrose died, and it is really a letter to the United States, a letter to all Americans. He wanted to give his perspective of what has happened through our history and what our future looks like. It is really good. To America, T-O America, to America. Fantastic book. In it, he tells this story. He had just finished his book on Custer and Crazy Horse and was really enthralled by the things that he had learned during that time. And he decided that he wanted to write a book on Geronimo. But he realized that he knew very little about Geronimo and he was going to have to go to a part of the country that he really hadn't spent much time in at all. So he left the Black Hills of South Dakota, went down to New Mexico to the Apache Reservation, 
and he started doing some study. And while he was there, Ambrose met a lot of unique people, truly unique people. One of them was a lady named Eve Ball. She lived on the edge of the reservation, but she traveled back and forth every day. She would tell Ambrose that she fell in love with the Apache people, and they would tell him that they had fallen in love with her. He believed that she was the finest historian on the Apache nation that our generation has ever seen, and he writes that very pointedly in this book. He says in talking with her, she shared all kinds of different stories, a lot of them just fantastic, like this one. She was sitting in her house one day when a medicine man that she had gotten very close to, his name was Ice, Ice came to her house, knocked on the door. She opened it, saw who it was. He had a big smile on his face. That's unusual for medicine men. She opened the door, welcomed him in. He came and sat down in her living room. They talked for a while, and then he said this to her. He said, Eve, I've come to tell you that the elders of the nation have voted to make you a part of the Apache people. Big smile on his face. Then he went on to say, do you know what that means? And she said, no, what's that mean? It means that you'll be able to go to the happy hunting grounds with us. Eve thought about it for a little while, and and then she said, Ice, I'm going to have to respectfully decline, but thank you. Well, he didn't know what to do with that, so Ice thought about it for a little while, and he said, why would you decline? And, And Eve went on to say, because you know how important books are to me, and Ice, in the happy hunting grounds, there are no books at all, so I'm going to have to decline. Ice thought about that for a little while, and he said, well, are there books in your white man's heaven? And she, without missing a beat, said, oh, yeah, there are libraries full of them, stacks of books everywhere. I'll be able to read all the time and continue to learn and grow. I thought about that for a little bit, just kind of quiet and and sullen on the couch. And he said, then we'll make a raid. (laughs) Isn't that great? We'll make a raid on white man's heaven. We'll bring those books to the happy hunting ground, and you'll be welcomed in, and it'll be fantastic. In his estimation, there was the combination of the two, the Indian happy hunting ground and the white man's heaven. But my friends, I want you to know this. There is no combination of the two. There isn't. Because the thing that separates them one from the other is Jesus Christ. And there is no kingdom of God without Jesus Christ. So we cannot take the concepts that people have of heaven and put them with the biblical truth of what heaven is because to do that means that we have to take Jesus off of his throne. John chapter 14, verse 6, you know this verse, it's very pointed. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. That's the only way we get there. It's the only way. Now the problem, I believe, is this. If both of my sons were sitting here right now and they began to think for themselves just a little bit that the Christian idea, the biblical idea of heaven meant that there were libraries everywhere in heaven and they were going to have to spend eternity reading, they would tell you that that was actually hell and they would choose the happy hunting ground because that sounds much better. But that's that's just Eve Ball's idea of what heaven would be like. And, And really, that's a good way of looking at it. This kingdom of God, this thousand-year reign of Christ, the millennial kingdom on this earth, it's going to be the best. The things that you love and long for, the things that you have enjoyed on this life are going to be there ten times, hundred times, thousand times. Better. Better. Can you imagine? Jim, that means that you'll get an elk again. That'll be cool. Pheasants will fly straight and the ducks will come right into you. It'll be an amazing place. Revelation chapter 20 is not the only place in the Bible that speaks of this millennial kingdom. 
I want to take you to some of them, and I'm going to ask that if you have your Bibles, you go there with me so that you see this for yourself. I want you to see the whole of Scripture as it talks about this. We're going to start in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 19, verse 28. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. This is the way Jesus speaks about that time. It is the renewal of all things. The millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign of Christ, will actually involve the renewal of the earth, the renewal of the atmosphere, returning the earth to the way God intended it to be. We're not going to have to worry about the, the degeneration of the earth any longer. It's the renewal of all things. Climate, geography, topography, all of it will change. Go with me to the book of Acts. Listen to what Peter says about it, speaking of the exact same time. Acts chapter 3, verse 19, and then we'll skip down to verse 21. Peter says, Repent then and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Verse 21, he goes on to say, He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything, as He promised long ago through His holy prophets. Times of refreshing and restoration. Total restoration. That's the thousand year reign of Christ. Times of refreshing. Times of restoration. If we go to the book of Ephesians, we listen to the Apostle Paul as he talks about it. This is Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love, He predestined us to be adopted as His sons through Jesus in accordance with His pleasure and will to, praise, to the praise of His glorious grace which He has freely given us in the one He loves. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. The times will have reached their fulfillment, and the thousand-year reign of Jesus will have been ushered in. This time of refreshing, the renewal of all things, the fulfillment of time. Even the Old Testament talks about it. This is in the, the Old Testament book of Joel, chapter 3, starting in verse 17. Then you will know that I, the Lord your God, dwell in Zion, my holy hill. Jerusalem will be holy. Never again will foreigners invade her. In that day the mountains will drip new wine and the hills will flow with milk. All the ravines of Judah will run with water. A fountain will flow out of the Lord's house and will water the valley of Acacias for a thousand years. Millennial reign of Jesus. Isn't that cool? He's going to return in the clouds and then we're going to see something that nobody has ever imagined. By the way, there are two different viewpoints of this. Something called the post-millennial view or the amillennial view. I taught on it in Sunday school today. If, if you'd like to get a copy of that, you can. And it'll show you two other viewpoints of the millennium. I am a person who believes that the return of Jesus will precede the thousand-year reign of Christ. It's called the premillennial point of view. And I think that's what the Bible teaches. Jesus is going to come and establish His kingdom. It's going to be amazing. 
absolutely amazing. There's some things in Revelation chapter 20 that help us understand exactly what it's going to be like. Go back there with me. Revelation 20. We'll start again in verse 1. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations any more until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. Imagine this. Satan is bound for a thousand years. An angel, and we don't know who it is. Most biblical scholars will actually tell you that they think it's Michael, but that's all it is, is a thought. The book of Daniel and the book of Jude talk about the wrestling match between Michael the archangel and the devil. So most scholars believe that Jesus is going to give him the power needed to come with this chain designed by God that he might bind Satan up and throw him into the abyss for a thousand years. Won't that be amazing? A thousand years without Satan tempting anybody. A thousand years without any kind of, of influence from the satanic realm thousand years of Satan locked away in the abyss. Now, some of you might be wondering, what, what's the abyss? Does that mean that, that he's already thrown Satan into hell? Absolutely not. The abyss is not hell. And a lot of people have mistaken one for the other. But if you remember me saying early on in this message that this thousand-year reign of Christ is going to be near perfect, not completely perfect, the reason it is near perfect is because Satan is only bound for a thousand years And he is only in the abyss. He has not yet gone to hell. That hasn't happened. Instead, he is contained in a place that God has reserved for the most vile of the fallen angels. And the Bible teaches this. I want to take you through it real quick just so you can see it. Let's go from the end of the Bible to the beginning of the Bible. Book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 6, starting in verse 1. When men began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful. Now let's stop right there. That term, the sons of God, is always used in the Bible to describe the angelic realm. The daughters of men is used to describe the daughters of men, humanity. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. When the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them, they were the heroes of old, men of renown. Now here's what's happening. There's a group of fallen angels that are actually having sex with women and they're producing an offspring of superhuman race called the Nephilim. The Bible lays it out pretty plainly. Now if you were like me growing up in the church, you never heard that story because this is the story that precedes the flood. What you heard, like me growing up in the church, is that men were just absolutely horrible individuals, and God said, I'm not going to abide the wickedness on the earth, so he sent the flood, and he wiped mankind off the face of the earth. How many of you heard that growing up? It's what the church has taught forever, but it's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that a group of fallen angels were having sex with women and producing a superhuman race, and God said, I will not abide it any longer. You ever wondered why it is that God hasn't wiped mankind off the face of the earth since the time of the flood? They couldn't have been any worse than we are. This is the reason, because of what was going on right here. So after mankind was destroyed, that left this angelic realm for God to deal with. This is what he did. Let's go to the book of 1 Peter. So you're going from Genesis to the book of 1 Peter. Chapter 3, starting in verse 18. 
Peter writes, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. This water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand, with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Now we're finding out about this prison, which is the abyss that Revelation chapter 20 is talking about. That's this place where Satan is kept. Let's go to the, the book of Jude, a little tiny book, the, the last book before the book of Revelation. Verse 6, Jude writes, And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their own home, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. Now that's where Satan is going. He's going into that exact same abyss, bound with a chain, waiting for judgment that's going to come at the next step in the book of Revelation. But it's not hell. It's a prison, a holding place, if you will, where the angelic realm is at. And that's where Satan is going. So he's bound up. He's off the face of the earth. Everything should be great. For a thousand years, under the reign of Jesus Christ and no influence from Satan. But remember I said, it's just near perfect. We're going to come back to that in just a little bit. Back to Revelation chapter 20. Look at what else is going on. Verse 4. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. There are thrones besides Jesus' throne during this thousand years that are occupied by other people. At least four groups of people that I'm aware of. We're going to put some scripture up on the screen as we go through these four groups. If you're a note taker, write these scriptures down so that you can go back and look them up for yourself. Here's the first group, the Old Testament saints. Daniel chapter 7 verse 27 contains a promise from the Lord to the Old Testament saints that they will actually reign during the millennial kingdom. They will sit on thrones with Jesus during that time. Second group of people, the apostles. Matthew chapter 19 verse 28, we read that passage just a few minutes ago. That was Jesus' promise to the apostles that they will sit on thrones and they will reign with Jesus during the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ. Here's the third group, and this is the group that really ought to excite all of us. The New Testament saints, that's you, that's me. The people that have been caught up to be with the Lord during the rapture will return in the sky with Him. We will come back with Him and there are thrones reserved for you to reign with Jesus during that time. The Bible actually refers to us and the Old Testament saints and the apostles and this fourth group of people as those that have been given the authority to judge. Here's the fourth group. The tribulation saints, those that will give their lives to Jesus Christ during the seven-year tribulation period. The Bible uses graphic terminology. Those that had their heads cut off for the worship of Jesus will reign with him and be given thrones and the authority to judge during that thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ. Be reigning over those that were still alive during that time. Be reigning with those that, that entered the millennial kingdom 
still with their life. That's kind of cool to think about. The Bible would call you a joint heir with Jesus. He would call us brothers and sisters. We are all sons of God, but we're just like Him. And He says, here's a throne waiting for you. You'll be a part of that. Isn't that cool? It really is. kind of gives me goosebumps. Think about it. Here's the best that there is. It's near perfect, and there's this place for us to reign. By the way, that's that whole point of the first resurrection. The Old Testament saints, the New Testament saints, the tribulation saints are all participants in the first resurrection. The second resurrection comes a thousand years after the first one. A thousand years after that, then those that have been enemies of God will be resurrected to face judgment. The first resurrection is of the righteous. The Gospel of Luke has Jesus saying that it is the resurrection of life. The resurrection of the righteous. That first resurrection is all about the friends of God, the people of God, reigning with God. And the cool part about that is for those people, for me, for you, for Christians today, those that will return with Jesus in the clouds, there is no fear of what the Bible would call the second death. That is the judgment of God that will send people to hell. Because if you're a participant in the first resurrection, the second death has no power over you. There's no reason to worry about it. There's no reason to be scared about it. There's no reason to, to spend any time thinking how horrible is that going to be unless you're spending that time thinking about how horrible it will be for those that have to face it. But my friends, the church will not face it because we participated in the first resurrection. Amen? You guys got to polish your amen a little bit. It's come faster and louder, a little more enthusiasm. So here's what we learn about this millennial kingdom. Satan will be bound for a thousand years. Jesus will reign on a throne, and we will reign with him. And at the end of the thousand years, and this is really curious, Satan will be loosed for a time. Doesn't that make you wonder? Why does that have to happen? Why does Satan have to be loosed? God, you could have thrown him right into hell. Why did we have to turn him loose? Let's go back to the book of Revelation so that you can see exactly what Scripture says about this. Verse 7. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather together them for battle. In number they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Satan has turned loose. And he has turned loose to go to the four corners of the earth, which, by the way, was a passage of Scripture for the longest time in history that people used to prove that the earth was flat. Four corners of the earth, which actually just means north, south, east, and west. That's all it is. Satan will go to the four corners of the earth, and he will gather together the enemies of God. After a thousand years of peace, after a thousand years of Jesus reigning, where are these enemies of God going to come from? They're all gone. The tribulation wiped them all out. Millions and millions and millions of people were killed during that seven-year tribulation period. Where are these enemies of God coming from? There were people alive after Armageddon. Christian people. Believers. We have come back with the Lord after the first resurrection to reign with Him during that thousand-year reign of Christ. But those people that were still alive, they have their lifespan extended. They are going to live throughout the course of that thousand years and they're going to marry and be given in marriage and they're going to have children. 
And those children are going to hear the stories of of what Jesus has done. They're going to hear the stories of the tribulation. They're going to hear the stories of the judgment of God. They're actually going to be able to see Jesus reigning on a throne in heaven, and and they'd be able to touch him and talk to him if they were there and and stand in his court and hear all these things. And, And they could actually physically, visibly see the Lord. And then they're going to have children. They'll be able to do the same thing and hear the same stories. And they're going to have children. They're going to be able to do the same things and hear the same stories. Because the lifespans are so long, the population is going to grow exponentially. It's just going to grow rapidly because of how long people are living. It'll be just like it was in the Old Testament. Population explosion. And the problem with that is even though they could see Jesus and they could touch Jesus, they can hear the stories of their parents and grandparents and great-grandparents, they are still going to wrestle against a sin nature because that's still there. Satan is bound. They're not having to wrestle with temptation, but Satan is bound and they still have to deal with sin. And the sin nature will be there. I heard a fellow say this past week as I was just, I didn't hear him say that, I actually read it because I was so confounded by this. And I always have been. How could there still be sinners? How could that happen? They could see Jesus. They could hear Jesus. How could that happen? This is what this man says, and it is so true. He says, the issue of salvation has never been a lack of knowledge. It has always been a love of sin. Listen to that again. The issue of salvation has never, it has never been a lack of knowledge. It has always been a love of sin. John chapter 3, verse 19 lays that out pretty pointedly. Go there with me. John chapter 3, verse 19. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. And that will be true during the millennial kingdom as well, the thousand-year reign of Christ. Light will have come into the world. Jesus Christ will have come into the world and be reigning from a throne in Jerusalem. But men will still love the darkness because they love sin. And that's going to happen. I don't get it. I don't get it. How could somebody love sin more than Jesus, particularly in a situation like that? But the question actually has to be asked today. How can people love sin more than Jesus today? But they do. All the time. All the time. With no concern whatsoever for what eternity holds. They love their sin with no concern for where they're going to end up. They love their sin, believing that the consequences will not even come close to the benefits. But the truth of it is, the consequences of sin will overshadow and destroy any benefit that you may find, any pleasure that you may find. Yet people will love their sin more than life. And we do it today, all the time, with no fear of hell. Back in the 1930s and 40s and 50s and into the early 60s, there were a group of revival preachers that were going out preaching two- and three-week revivals. Anybody ever go to a two-week revival? Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Two- and three-week revivals every night. They would preach hell, fire, and brimstone, these revival preachers would, and they would tell you that there is a hell, and they would never apologize for it. 
They would tell you that the time is coming when people are going to be sent to hell. And they made no apology for it. And they would use the Bible to prove it. They would say hell is real and don't ever forget that hell is real. And people would give their lives to the Lord over and over and over again in huge numbers because these preachers were preaching hell. Then the 70s came. And a group of preachers from within the church started to say, maybe that's not right. Maybe there is no hell. Maybe a loving God would never send anybody to hell. Maybe grace is bigger than anything that we've ever thought. And, and we ought to start preaching grace. Trent, do you remember when this happened? People started preaching grace and mercy and they removed hell from the equation. They stopped preaching about it. Preachers did. I grew up in a time when hell was never mentioned. Nobody ever talked about it. But the Bible does. The Bible never stopped talking about it. In the 70s and the 80s and the 90s, under the auspices of a grace teaching and a grace preaching, preachers said, don't worry about hell. A loving God would never, ever send anybody to hell. And the church is guilty of that. And my friends, God will sort that out with those preachers. God will sort that out with those teachers. But I do not want to be one of them that stands before him, having never mentioned it to you. There is a hell. It is real. And it is the worst thing you could imagine times 1,000. People will say that there's no way a loving God would ever send anybody to hell. What you need to understand about it, and I'm going to talk more about it next week. I hope you'll be back. I'm going to, right in the middle of the Christmas season, we're going to dedicate a whole message to hell. So <laughs> come back next week for that. You're going to hear more about it and, and stick around for Sunday school. I'm going to teach on it more there as well. Here's the thing about it. A loving God would never send anybody to hell. You can quote me on that but he will allow you to choose it. He loves you that much. Hell is a choice. And you will choose to go there if you choose to reject Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You know what the Bible says about hell, and I don't want to get too far ahead of myself? It is a place of mental and physical torment. Jesus would call it the place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. It is a mental and physical torment with no end, not ever, not ever. It is a lake of burning fire that people will be thrown into. It is worse than Phoenix in July, and there is no end to it. None. Not ever. And God says, you may very well choose it. Katie shared something with me this past week, and I, I just cannot get it out of my mind. Katie, of course, is our 14-year-old daughter, and she's a freshman in high school. She said she was listening to a group of students. I don't know if it was in one of her classes or at lunch or whatever it was, but this group of students was talking, and, and several of them were saying to the other people around them, are you going to hell? Because I am. Are you going to hell? Because that's where I'm going. And they were saying it to each other as if they were going to a huge party. They were saying it to each other as if this is going to be a great gathering for all of us and we're going to want to be there. It'll be the tailgate party to end all tailgate parties. And what a misconception. Book of Galatians says very pointedly that God will not be mocked. And that's pretty big mockery. Are you going to hell because I'm going? I want you to come with me. Could you imagine saying that to somebody? I can't even imagine it. So Katie shared that with me and I, I'm thinking, oh my word. Group of high school students that are talking that way. How much more are college students and adults forgetting about how terrible of a place this is? A place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And at the end of, of the thousand-year reign of Christ, there are people that are going to choose that. They're going to choose that. And Satan will be loosed. 
He will go out and he'll gather all those people together and they will come to make war against the Lamb again. They'll come back to Jerusalem in the Valley of Armageddon and they will set themselves up for yet another battle against the forces of God and it'll be just like the first battle. It'll be an annihilation and the Bible says that fire will come down out of heaven and it will consume them and they will be ushered in, ushered in to hell. The book of Isaiah actually says that when that time comes, it will be as if Jesus was herding them in. He's herding them into hell where they will be left. It's real. Come back next week. Learn more about it. It's real. And we make a choice for it or we make a choice to avoid it. Now, for some people, find themselves listening to this and they think, gosh, that's just scary. That's just terrifying. What what are we supposed to do with that? Well, here's the good news of it. There's no reason to be scared as a Christian. None whatsoever. There's no reason for us to be scared of of that type of stuff. And if we put it in the realm of eschatology or end times teaching and prophecy teaching, we won't even be here. The church is gone. So that's not even an issue. And you've come back to reign with Jesus. Everything's taken care of for you. But in this life, there's nothing to worry about. You want me to show you why? Well, I will. Luke chapter 22. Go with me. We're almost done. This is at the Last Supper, the first communion service, the Lord's Supper, different things that we call it. Jesus is gathered together with the disciples. He's declared to all of them that one of them is going to betray him. Peter has said, well, it certainly won't be me. The other disciples, we don't know what they said. We just have Peter's record of it. But he's saying with all boldness, it won't be me. Verse 31 of chapter 22, Jesus responds to him. Listen to this. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Three things, real fast. First one is this. Satan has no power over you except that which God allows. Satan has no power over you except that which God allows. Now you can go to the first chapter of Job and see that, or you can look right here in Luke chapter 22. When Jesus said, Simon, to Peter, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. Satan has to ask permission to have access to your life. And he has no access except that which God grants you. The book of 1 Corinthians says that God will not grant access to him beyond what you are capable of dealing with. And if he did, he provides a way out. So Satan has no access to your life except that which God grants. And when God grants it, did you catch the second thing? Jesus prays for you. There's power in that. There's all the power you need right there. God has granted access to your life But Jesus is praying for you. And when Jesus prays for you, there is only one outcome. There's only one. That is victory. When Jesus said to Peter, he said, And when you return, feed my sheep. He didn't say if. He said when. When you return, you feed my sheep. That's the victory of knowing that Jesus is praying for you, that you are a child of God, that you are a son or a daughter of the risen King. Jesus prays for you. John chapter 17 records this amazing prayer that Jesus offers first for himself, then for the disciples, and then for you. Jesus prays for you. That's all the strength you need. And because of that, hell is nothing to worry about. Hell is nothing for you to ever have to be concerned about unless it's for other people. The thousand-year reign of Christ will be beautiful, absolutely tremendous, and there's a throne with your name on it. If you are a child of God, if you have given your life to him, and if you have accepted the free gift of grace through
through Jesus Christ. I hope you have. It'll be exciting times. Revelation chapter 20 starts the most exciting part of the entire book of Revelation. It's got great stuff in it, beginning with this thousand years. And God has said, those thousand years have a purpose. I'm going to give these people that were alive during that time opportunity to come to know me and to accept me. Remember, Jesus said, I'm the only way, or I am the way, the truth, and life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. He's the only way to heaven. So he gives this next group of people an opportunity to repent, and some won't. In fact, many won't. They'll be as numerous as the sands of the seashore. They will come against God, and they will experience the judgment of God, and then the kingdom of heaven will be ushered in. It'll be cool, and we'll be a part of it. Why don't you stand with me? We're going to pray together, and then we're going to sing together. And if you'd like to talk to somebody about Jesus Christ, you can do that. Father in heaven, uh, these thousand years, wow. Wow. I look forward to so much of what the Bible tells us is coming. And I take it all very seriously and and literally. Lord, I believe that those events are, are still out in the future, and that makes it easy to look forward with great anticipation of that time. I look forward to Satan being bound. Look forward, Father, to being able to see you face to face and experience life with you. And Father, I look forward to seeing how many more people choose to enjoy those things as well and give their lives to you. I pray that number will be greater than the sands of the seashore. Lord, I I will not question your plan. Instead, I'll just thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.